0: Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started paddling the blue. Welcome to today's episode of Paddling the Blue. Today, I'm chatting with Mark Spitzer. Mark shares a detailed account of his seven-month canoe trip down the entire length of the Missouri River and continuing down the Mississippi. He was joined by his dog Groucho who had some adventures of his own and it's a great story about the river and life change, so I'm glad you're here with me today. Before we get to our chat with Mark, James and Simon at OnlineSeaKayaking.com continue to produce great content to help you evolve as a paddler and as a coach. Everything from basic strokes and safety to paddling in tides, surfing, coaching, documentaries, and their latest edition, Expedition Skills. It's all in one place, so if you're not already a subscriber to OnlineSeaKayaking.com, here's your opportunity to get started. Visit onlineseacocking.com and use the coupon code Podcast to check out, and you'll get 10% off up to 12 months of your subscription investment. Enjoy today's episode with Mark Spitzer. Welcome, Mark. Thanks to joining Paddling the Blue. Glad to be here. Thank you for getting a hold of me. So Norm Miller made the connection here. It was uh, nice of Norm to, to connect us. We're talking a little bit about your, your first solo of the Missouri River from its source to sea. Yes. So you were the first recorded person to do that.
1: I believe i was and all the research that i've done and that john miller and others have done it looks like i was the first to go all the way from the continental divide itself literally to the ocean wow and that was half a lifetime ago but uh, (laughs) it's good good memories all in all
0: all right so tell me about your preparation for this trip actually quite lengthy
1: it was an idea that occurred to me about maybe three years before I actually started on it. I guess I was buying books. I was looking at maps. I was actually visiting different parts of the Missouri and the Mississippi, and especially the headwaters way up in the mountains, uh, the border between Idaho and Montana, the state line actually, and photographing that area and doing as much research as I could. I've been camping my entire life, so I felt pretty good as a uh, my camping skills, I should say. I felt pretty confident, but I was an indifferent canoeer, just doing it rec- recreationally, perhaps a couple of days every summer. So I started doing the research and I was—I had my own business at the time. And I realized, well, if I'm going to make a trip like this, I don't know, something in my head kind of stuck, you know, uh, the Lewis and Clark heritage of the Great Plains up here where I, where I grew up. So I read a lot of books. I uh, did some practicing. Uh, this, the summer that I started the trip, I said, you know, to do this right, I should maybe start on something very small and see if it'll actually work. So I went, it's the first chapter of my travel log, went out to the local national park in North Dakota. We only have one and got on the Little Missouri River and spent about a week paddling on Little Missouri and found out, OK, this does work. I can do this. I can do the work. I uh, overpacked two or three items over here. I'm never going to need those. I need. I underpacked two or three items. It was a good Shakedown cruise to get prepared.
0: What was the real inspiration for the trip?
1: I think as a country boy, then, so to speak, and that heritage of Lewis and Clark. And I actually thought at the time, this is something that I was disabused of pretty quickly, that if I do this, I'll get in the Guinness Book of Records. No one's ever done it. And that was uh, in the back of my mind, uh, some of the motivation. I uh, don't hold that as very high. In very high esteem anymore <laughs> I lost that about six weeks into the trip I said this is not a worthy thing to ambition for me to have but I stuck with it and I'm glad I did it but I spent two or three years just wanting to do that wanting to do that and then finally having done I think pretty good preparation uh headed out in 1989 and that's when the trip began I finished in 1990 in January it was a good seven months I was out on the water
0: now you didn't have a real a ton of canoeing experience prior. Correct, yes. And was that first shakedown trip in the Little Missouri, was that your, your longest uh, canoe trip?
1: At that point it was. It was, uh, I believe, six days on the water. I went about 170 miles, very low water, and I uh, had my dog with me. I went solo with my uh, mixed-breed dog that was two years old at the time. It took a while for him to get used to the idea, no misadventures there. The water was maybe waist deep at the deepest
0: and just had a good time, had a good time. Good. So, like you said, a good shakedown. You mentioned you brought a couple of things uh, that you didn't need and then forgot a couple <laughs> things that you did need. Most people just bring a journal. You mm-hmm. brought something else.
1: Yes, I did all my initial notes uh, into a tape recorder. And I had some experience with audio, so it's all stereo. And some of it is actually, I would call it high-definition stereo. And when I listen to it today, I'm stunned sometimes what I'm hearing in the background. The sound of the water, the paddle, you know, as I'm speaking and paddling down. Or at night, in the middle of the night, the storm that's striking me. And when I'm in my tent, lots of storms and animal sounds along the way. Uh, It was interesting. Then, of course, every third day was a storm day, and I'd be on shore. (laughs) and had nothing else to do, I'd be reading a lot, this is pre-smartphone day back then, I would start going through my notes because I was writing for some local newspapers in North Dakota, and I ended up writing, I believe, 22 articles over seven months. So then I would first listen to the stereo recordings, and as I was jotting down notes on paper longhand, I go, oh, and I forgot that this happened Tuesday, and I'll add this in for Wednesday, and... That was like a s- first draft and then a second draft when I actually typed it up and put it in the mailbox to the newspaper. And so this has gone through a lot of incarnations, my writing has. But yes, those uh, audio recordings, I don't think anybody, my brother perhaps has listened to a few minutes of it. They're kind of, a, kind of. well, they're probably of most interest to me. Yeah. That's about 24 hours of actual recording that covers the entire seven months and all pertinent to what was happening to me day by day down the river.
0: Now, in addition to the audio device, you brought another mechanical device with you that you decided you didn't need.
1: (laughs) Well, that was on the Shakedown Cruise, of course.
0: (laughs) Yes, I did not need to
1: take a typewriter along. I really didn't. (laughs) But unlike backpacking, where you really have to think about every single ounce you're carrying, I figured, well, in a canoe, I can take the kitchen sink, I can load it up, and I did. But the typewriter was totally unnecessary. I always had time every week to stop at a local library or somewhere else. They would always set me up. I love librarians. They would set me up in a little room and bring me paper and coffee and I'd be typing up. So yes, no typewriter needed. (laughs) I don't know. I would certainly take a tablet along if I was going today. do some of the writing that way, but uh, this is before the technology had been developed.
0: So speaking of the Guinness Book of World Records, you may have, you maybe should research this, you may have been the first person to take a typewriter on a canoe trip. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I w- that could be so, yes. <laughs> so you mentioned seven months long. How many miles was the trip? Roughly 3,800. So you go from 170 miles in six days to a seven-month 3,800-mile trip.
1: Yes. it. Uh, the river has changed over the last century or two, especially in North America with... I guess our civilization and navigation on the Missouri-Mississippi has been, you know, a big factor, and the oxbows have been cut off, and the river's been shortened and shortened and shortened and reinforced and built up. Of course, this is, I think, common around the world now, but the river is probably longer in the 1800s than it is now, and 3,800 is a pretty good rough number, especially if you count the first miles, the first 100 miles or 50 miles way up above anything that's navigable which i hiked or canoed every foot of the way and the last hundred miles beyond new orleans to get out to the actual ocean physically into the gulf of mexico my rule was in my head i thought this would be of importance perhaps for guinness or just for myself every single foot would be canoed or hiked. There'd be no exceptions. When I portaged, somebody with a pickup truck would help me move around a dam, I would go back and I would walk that mile or two. And I did that consistently
0: throughout. Walk us through the trip. Uh, I know it's a number of years later, but kind of walk us through the trip. Well...
1: Once I finished the shakedown cruise, I kind of sealed up my house, so to speak. I was renting a nice little log cabin for many years in western North Dakota and packed everything up, headed out to Montana. I had friends in the area and they helped me get started and shuttled my car around for me, things like that. And started up an area that's called Hell Roaring Canyon. It's 10 or 12 miles long. It's very rugged. There's no trails. There's no roads into it. So you have to strategize or try to figure out how to get up to the upper reaches of that canyon. Now, uh, many people have done this, including Norm Miller, who you mentioned earlier. It's uh, very rough terrain. I'm not going to be canoeing over a teaspoon of water sitting on the ground, so that area I hiked, and it took me about two days to get out of the canyon down to Red Rock Creek, and it's uh, Red Rock Lakes National Wildlife Refuge, which was really kind of the starting week of the trip. And wonderful people there at the National Refuge that watched over my gear when I was gone and actually helped me move a couple times. So the first week was mostly hiking before I actually got down to Red Rock River and started canoeing for real. And that was uh, the beginning of the downhill trip. Originally, I thought I would call my book Downhill from Here, (laughs) but people pointed out that sounded a little bit negative. So started and learned a lot along the way. I was glad I took the shakedown cruise. That gave me a few skills, and also I knew that the water would be small, like the little Missouri was small, and eventually it would grow and grow and grow into the major rivers that we have in North America, and and that uh, that worked, more or less. I did learn it little by little by little, and Never had any serious mishaps, though I probably, there were days I shouldn't have been out there, and there were a few situations I wish I hadn't gotten into, but there was nothing where I felt like I was in imminent danger of being hurt or being killed. Uh, Never quite got that bad.
0: And how did Groucho enjoy the trip?
1: I think he enjoyed it quite a lot. He got into a lot of trouble. (laughs) Uh, The first week of the trip, he, uh, and he was a two-year-old dog, was, I thought I was lucky that it happened. He got into a porcupine. But he only had about 10 quills in his nose, and I was right there. And he was ready to dive back in, and I stopped him. And I thought, great, he'll learn, his, he'll learn from this, not to mess with porcupines. But about uh, two months later, he got into, you know, oh, goodness, he had the whole porcupine on his face. I mean, <laughs> it, was, it was horrible. I had to take an extra day off for the veterinary service, and they, uh, uh, they got him fit for travel again. Uh, three times, he wandered off, and that delayed me. Again, traveling solo is its own thing versus having two people or three people. And uh, I'd have to track him down. And even, I actually thought I completely lost him. This is quite late in the trip at the southeast corner of Missouri. And I spent two days looking for him and couldn't find him. And I'd made connections with the local police, the local dog pound, the local veterinary a local call-in radio show, the newspapers. I contacted every possible person that could help in this regard and I already I made arrangements that if he was found he would end up in such and such a kennel and it was about three weeks later four weeks later I'm hundreds of miles downstream when I finally got the message that he had been found and and uh, he spent about a month in a kennel this is nearing the end of the trip the last month or so then my family my brother brought him down to Louisiana and he joined me for the last several weeks and he was happy to be back in the boat. Oh, that's great. In many ways, uh, Groucho the dog, it was the star of the trip. I was just a supporting actor there.
0: (laughs) So that first porcupine incident, that was uh, right around the time of one of those mishaps that you mentioned, I think.
1: Yes, yes. It's really the only time I got into trouble where I capsized the boat, where I swamped the boat. Again, I was lucky. It was, relatively speaking, shallow water, knee deep or so, uh, right below the first major dam. And the water came out in a rush. I didn't quite know what I was doing. And I had, you know, 100, 150 pounds of gear plus my weight, the dog's weight. And we just got into brush and trees and fast water. And it was, most of my equipment and gear was securely lashed, you know, tied into the canoe. But I did lose one small waterproof bag that had some precious items in it, some cameras. A couple hundred dollars of cash, but especially an address book of my whole life—everybody I'd ever met—and spent time spent about a day and a half, I think. And with the help of the local sheriff or deputy, we found it and retrieved it. It was during that search for the bag that Groucho found that first porcupine.
0: All right, so that—that's Red Rock Can Red Rock River. Uh huh. All right, so tell us. Uh, so keep us rolling here.
1: Well, the Red Rock River, like I say, emerges from Lima Dam, this is near Lima, Montana, in a rush, and uh, the water is being used by local farmers and ranchers, and it's drawn off, this is the month of June in 1989, it's drawn off for irrigation purposes, and they flood the fields and whatever crops they happen to be growing, so pretty soon the river basically disappeared. It's really used for agricultural purposes, so I would hike those areas where the water disappeared, and keep moving down keep moving down work out a way to shuttle the canoe and all my gear forward and i say did quite a bit of hiking in the first several weeks actually the next dam i believe it was uh, clark canyon dam and that was a relatively uh, sizable reservoir uh, camp there and again right below the dam plenty of water coming out and this time i was a little bit prepared i was better prepared for the fast water that emerges from a spillway below a dam and we did we made good mileage for dozens of miles, and then eventually the water disappeared again. Hmm. It was all being used for irrigation. But that was to be expected, I guess. I wasn't aware that uh, I would actually run into that complication, but it wasn't a killer. It, you know, I could keep going. Like I said, it builds up more and more streams added in. Eventually, the Jefferson River, one of the three that make up the headwaters of the Missouri at Three Forks, Montana. The Jefferson River was beautiful. Still a few little dams but they were just little breakwater dams, I would call them. I'm not sure what the technical name is. And beautiful country, beautiful paddling, the real current that was predictable. The water stopped disappearing on me. took me most of the first month to get to Three Forks, where on our maps we say the Missouri starts.
0: And now you've had several instances up until this point, or up to this point, where you've had to basically shuttle your boat and shuttle yourself hitchhiking and going back and forth?
1: yes i uh probably the most hitchhiking I ever did in my life and uh I describe it a little bit uh the hitching process at different times in my narrative but uh yeah really wasn't a problem. I felt like okay i'm I'm standing out there with my life preserver, my personal flotation- uh protection on, and I have a dog with me, and I'm carrying a paddle. I shouldn't look too <laughs> threatening, too dangerous, and generally that was true. People helped me along the way. It was amazing. Uh, that was one thing I didn't anticipate, how readily strangers will give you a hand and help you move along and keep going. And I would usually offer them, you know, $10, dollars nineteen eighty-nine dollars mm-hmm. uh, whatever, to help move me. And they'd say, okay, we'll move you. And once we were done, they wouldn't take the money. That was a regular thing. They just were happy to do it. And it changed my view on being quite so pessimistic of strangers. And I think uh, I learned that people will help if you give them a chance, they want to do something nice. And that was a learning experience that I hadn't anticipated and sure thoroughly enjoyed. It was a, it was a nice time. Met some wonderful people and I stayed in touch with many, well, a number of them for many years. Good folks.
0: Good to see that happening along the way.
1: Yeah, river angels, I guess. Yes.
0: Now, from Three Forks, where the Missouri officially begins, it sounds like. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. Yes.
1: From there, it's basically northward. You wouldn't think Hmm. to get from Montana to Louisiana, you would travel north. But for about 100 miles from Three Forks, it's basically northward, and you get into some of the most beautiful mountain country. You get into the gates of the mountains area which Lewis and Clark were stunned by when they reached it uh, 200-some years ago. Now the dams in the Missouri became more, com- or more common and larger, more reservoirs. I began to develop a personal, <laughs> a <laughs> personal dislike for reservoirs because, of course, it's it's still water. There's oh, yeah. no current. It's, it's a lake. And Montana has, just on the Missouri, not even the Jefferson and the Headwaters, Montana has 10 dams on the Missouri, most of them rather small. Great Falls, five of the dams are right at Great Falls, so I hiked that as one stretch. It was a dozen miles or so to get around all five dams at once. Others might have taken the time to canoe or kayak each of the five small reservoirs, but I simply hiked past them all, but beautiful country. Reaching up, uh, got past the last dam, and then it was pretty much clear paddling for about a week until I got to the, the major reservoir in Montana, which is Fort Peck. And you're actually getting closer and closer to North Dakota by that time, and the river is moving easterly in, in general. And Fort Peck was roughly a 100-mile reservoir, 100 miles long. 89 was unusual in this sense. Uh, probably it was drought years in the last part of the 1980s, but all these big reservoirs were low. They were greatly low, They 10 feet below normal water levels, sometimes I think 20 feet, so the reservoir would actually become smaller. And in some ways that sounded like a good thing. I would gain back river current at the head of the reservoir. I wouldn't have to paddle still water, but it's also very problematical because what you're paddling through is a muddy area. It's just miles and miles of extensive mud both sides of the river. Sometimes I had trouble finding the river because the water would be just inches deep and it was creating its temporary channels through exposed mud and so the heads of the reservoirs sometimes it seemed like i got current back for an extra 10 or 20 miles sometimes i just it was a disastrous muddy mess i was in but i made it through fort peck and then back to nice beautiful stretch of water that takes you from fort peck to almost to the north dakota state line called the missouri breaks and it's a beautiful badlands kind of setting with buttes and arroyas and and wonderful areas and had a wonderful time paddling through there again because we had a current again it also felt like home i've lived my whole life in the upper great plains so when i got out to the prairies again and a nice predictable river it, it was very nice indeed
0: It sounds like the river's changing quite a bit along the way. Yes.
1: The river is still changing, at least in one spot. I have my maps here, very good maps. I spent hundreds of dollars on these hard copy topo maps of different scales sometimes. But in one spot, I got a little bit lost. I said, what's this? And an oxbow had been cut off. The river had been shortened by about a mile and a half. It didn't take, it was five minutes to figure that out. But... The riverbanks, yes, you could see sometimes great sections of a high, you know, a 10-foot-high riverbank collapse into the water. Sometimes I would hear it once I began to recognize what was, what the sound was. you, I would hear it and not see it. But the river's changing. It's still making its course from year to year. I suppose whether it's high water or low water, you might have more erosion or less erosion. But the maps were very good, and they kept me going.
0: That is one interesting thing about rivers is that you'll never paddle it and have it be the same experience anytime. There
1: you are. There you go. I was carrying at the time because as I said, I was sort of a Lewis and Clark fan and I had purchased some time before the entire collected works of the Lewis and Clark expedition, the voyage of discovery. It was like eight volumes and the eighth volume is simply maps. It was like a, Not a regular book. It was like a box that you would open, and it was map after map after map that they had hand-drawn 200 years earlier. So I was always kind of checking my progress with the days and the distances with what Lewis and Clark had done. And that was interesting to me, and I think it is interesting to kind of see what these first Caucasians that came through the area, how they were discovering the place. Did you
0: find their maps to be pretty accurate? not really okay (laughs)
1: in in general if you looked at a 10 mile stretch of little oxbows and and turns and cutoffs you could probably identify it or you might be able to identify it with the modern day river a lot has changed since their time but for what they were doing it's amazing and of course a lot has been written in and specials and television specials and so forth have been done on uh, the lewis and clark expedition the voyage of discovery and it's incredible what that party did it's unfortunate the way things developed from there with native americans being pushed off of the majority of the great plains but at that time it was still unwritten nobody really could say for sure i suppose what the result would be of their expedition up the river it was uh, it was interesting though right. and they were they were interesting writers even 200 years ago so it was nice to kind of use them as a touchstone and see where i was
0: Now, not only is the river changing, but it sounds like the landscape is changing as well considerably.
1: Oh, well, certainly with populations. I mean, there was wild, it was open wilderness back then. And now, of course, the whole area is settled. Though sometimes it it really, you wouldn't see anything. You wouldn't see houses in the Missouri breaks, for instance. Some of the Badlands areas, it really probably looks very much the way it did, like I say, centuries ago. But power lines and bridges over the water and junk, sometimes just garbage in the river. It wasn't that common in the upper stretches. Later, especially way down the Mississippi, it becomes a different story completely. It's its very much an industrial effect that you're seeing when
0: you're on the water. I've interviewed a couple of other Missouri through paddlers and, I'm uh-huh. oh, sorry, um, Mississippi through paddlers, excuse me. And uh, they've mentioned even along the Mississippi, there's large stretches the further you go uh, where it still feels remote.
1: Yes, it did. I think especially when you get to the lower Mississippi, which is, um, it's a monster. It's huge. It's you know, the narrow parts might be a mile across, but it's a huge flood area. It's been flooding there for thousands and thousands of years. So you don't want to build your house on the shore next to the lower Mississippi. People move back five miles, ten miles, and you wouldn't see anything. You wouldn't see anybody unless there was really some high ground, some topographically high terrain to build upon. Down in Louisiana, Mississippi, and so forth, uh, long stretches almost reminded me of home. I said, there's nobody here. This is a wide open area. You're right, that was an interesting hmm, juxtaposition, something like that, where the beginning of the trip and the end of the trip almost resembled each other.
0: So you make your way through through the Dakotas.
1: Yes, that took a long time because there are four major reservoirs in the two Dakotas on the Missouri River, all of it dead water, and it took, I'd have to double check exactly how long, but it slowed me down quite a bit. I was still in South Dakota when I started we started having frost overnight in the evenings. I thought, I'm way too far north for the winter. I better be heading south. But nonetheless, it was still, there's some beautiful land. I'm prejudiced. I'm a North Dakotan. Yeah. I think that the big reservoir in North Dakota, we have one really, is the most beautiful out of all the major reservoirs. It's so much so because it's in the Badlands and it's beautiful country. And then again, I'm home and I know people who live in the area. And I know the history of that area from childhood even. Teddy Roosevelt, president 100 years ago in the US, as a young man had spent a couple years in the North, what would be called North Dakota. It wasn't a state at the time. So I knew that he had had experiences out there in the Badlands in this rough terrain. And I could identify with that. South Dakota has um, more reservoir than North Dakota by far. In fact, there's very little free running water, in my view, in South Dakota. That's just the way that it is today. I'm not uh, disparaging that, except as a canoeist, I don't like reservoirs.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And then, uh, so you get from there into Missouri.
1: Yes, the tail end of South Dakota, if people are familiar with uh, how the maps, how the state lines run, there's kind of a southeast corner that kind of tails off into a little point Well, that's the end of the last dam on the Missouri. And after that, it was free water. Right at that point, too, is where you start running into barge traffic. Uh, Barges on the river, towboats pushing them. At first, I was a little leery. I had no idea what that would be like. I found out it wasn't really a problem. You stay 100, 200 yards away from the barges, it was never a problem. At first, I didn't know that, but uh, I was happy that I wasn't seeing three, four, five-foot-high waves coming at me and fast mileage, because it was all current. So then the trip started to accelerate as far as miles per day. I really enjoyed that. I entered the state of Missouri, a pretty sizable state, right at the very northwest corner. That happens to be the Missouri as part of the state line. When I exited Missouri a few weeks later, it was exactly at the southeast corner, past St. Louis. And so Missouri was a wonderful paddle. I enjoyed that time almost completely, except as I Briefly mentioned earlier, at the very end of Missouri is when my dog really disappeared. Yeah. And it took a long time to get him back.
0: Good thing thing you got him back.
1: Yes, yes.
0: And then you made your way down the Mississippi.
1: Yes, and then I put the Lewis and Clark books aside, you might say. I was doing a lot of reading, Uh, novels, history, science fiction, a little bit of everything, classics. And I put Lewis and Clark aside and picked up Mark Twain. And, and Mark Twain's history, and especially his book, Life on the Mississippi, I believe, where he describes it, not quite mile for mile, but town by town. As a middle-aged man, he went back to his home in Missouri and took a riverboat down to New Orleans and, and kind of described his memories of the river. And I just followed along with him. It was a wonderful guidebook, and I certainly would recommend Mark Twain to anybody that wants to float the Mississippi area because he'll tell delightful little stories along the way, but he also tells you geographically what's going on along the way. St. Louis was the biggest city I had to go by. I had a strategy. I actually went by half a dozen large cities, uh, Omaha, Nebraska, St. Louis, uh, Kansas City. Yeah, I had kind of a strategy where I would arrange it so that the uh, as I approached the city, I'd be camping just before the city limits, still kind of out in the boondocks. And the next day, I would paddle clear past the city to get back to more of a secluded or wilderness area. And I wouldn't be accidentally stuck in the middle of an industrial factory for camping. St. Louis is a little bit difficult, and not terribly, but it's so large. And I, start, and I was on the Missouri as I came to St. Louis, but that's where the Missouri ends, enters the Mississippi. You have to go around the town on three sides, not just one side. get completely clear of it. But that all worked out pretty well. I didn't have any mishaps along the way. ran into, you might say, the last dam because I wasn't actually aware of this at the time. The Upper Mississippi has these miniature dams. I think there's 28 of them, 27 of them, between Minneapolis and St. Louis. And they keep the water levels high enough, bit by bit by bit, for barge traffic on the Mississippi. So I had to go through the very last one, the Chain of Rocks Canal a series of locks at the end of it where they raised and lowered the boat and after that there was there were no dams whatsoever got onto the mississippi was happy to be there
0: how long was the missouri river and its tributaries or its uh, headwaters portion of the trip oh darn it darn it
1: i i would have to look that up now I, I i must have had it in my memory at the time but i'm sorry that is gone i can maybe say by time it was about 5 months
0: so five months to do the Missouri and just two months to finish off the Mississippi.
1: That's very roughly speaking, that's, that's it. Yes.
0: Were you camping most of the way?
1: Yes. Almost always. Uh, about one day a week, I'd get a motel room in a tiny little town near the river, take a real shower instead of just, uh, bathing in the, in the river or sponge bath, that sort of thing, or under a water spigot in a park, which was always cold. But about one day out of the week, I'd be in a motel someplace and, uh, catch up with people, make my phone calls, mail off my little articles to the newspaper. I did most of my resupply in these little towns as far as food or other items that I might need. Paying it back to the local communities? Yeah, and doing little interviews along the way usually. uh, You know, a little county newspaper here or there. Some large city newspapers also interviewed me at the time and uh, a couple of television stations along the way. That was my experience with civilization at the time. I'd uh, touch base with some of these folks. Since this is pre-internet, I also had mail drops. About every third week or fourth week, I'd pick a town on the map and let all my friends and family know. Send me a letter, please. Send me a letter. It's lonely out here. Here's my next mail drop, and it would just be they would hold my mail at this post office and then the next post office. That worked out really well, and it was always it was almost like Christmas to go and pick up the mail and find you know a handful of letters from people. Uh, that I wanted to hear from, and a nice change from time to time.
0: Since you brought it up, did you ever feel lonely?
1: Yes, and that was something I hadn't found in my research. Maybe if I'd have kept going, or dug a little deeper, but I found out, or maybe it's personal for me, but traveling alone that much, you start to get a little funny. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, And it was a depressing, I don't wanna say I was depressed, But it was that sort of a thing. Your mood would get a little bit dark or a little bit despondent. But again, with a grain of salt, take that. I was never like terribly, terribly under the weather that way. But I hadn't expected that. Though by the end of the trip, it had kind of piled up on me. By the time I got down to Louisiana and New Orleans, my family was meeting me there. They made the last week my best week of the trip, or one of the best weeks of the trip. But I think they recognized, too, that I would be grouchy if anything held me up. By that point, I wanted to finish it. I wanted (laughs) to finish the trip. I'd set this goal, this ambition, to paddle this entire length, and I couldn't do anything until I finished it, and it had been half a year. I just wanted to finish it. It took some of the joy out of it, I have to say. But I got over that, too. I apologized to them. I said, I'm a little bit crazy, so understand. <laughs> and I think in my travel log I say, uh, I, it was, I'm exaggerating, of course, but I say, if somebody said good morning to me, I felt like they were slowing me down. And what a horrible thing to have that sort of knee-jerk reaction at the time. But there was a little of that going on, and I hadn't found that out. These, a mood crash, I guess you might call it. You might, I might have a mood crash. The dog was invaluable that way, having a dog along, some sort of companion along. And maybe I, that's perhaps when I started talking to myself. In a sense, I pretended I was talking to the dog. <laughs> but... uh <laughs> But of course, uh, and you are—you are talking to your pet or your dog. But his presence made a big difference when I lost him for three weeks, four weeks. That was—that was—I was unhappy.
0: Yeah, I bet. How'd you bring yourself out of those times when it was when you were feeling low? Oh, it was never chronic.
1: It was never—it
0: was be um,
1: you know ten minutes and it would pass again. It wasn't uh, anything that was. Uh, no, I would just soldier on, so to speak, and go, I'm going to do this, I will finish this. And I'd stand back and I'd watch the sunset, and I'd go, boy, that's beautiful. And I would get over it and carry on. And again, did a lot of reading, so maybe I'd dig out one of the novels or his you know, biographies I was reading and uh, get into that for a while. There was just boredom sometimes, especially being alone. It would just be a little bit boring out there when mile after mile was starting to look the same. I could adapt to that. It wasn't actually anything that was frightful. But again, I hadn't found that in the original research I had done, the travel logs I had read and swam, so but I think a lot of those people were not traveling solo. They were traveling with friends, with family. So that was a little bit of an eye opener, but it was surprising but it wasn't disastrous
0: for me. One of the strategies that I heard you mention in there was just kind of To reframe or refocus on something that's happening at that moment, the sunset, the sunrise. Yeah,
1: exactly. There's beautiful things along the entire route, uh, both rivers plus the headwaters plus the waters at the very end. There are beautiful things there, and I suppose it depends on what a person's personality is to start with. But I was a bachelor. I was in my mid-30s, so uh, I was getting used to uh, not having someone beside me all the time. And I suppose that was a a plus in its own little way. And I still had contact with friends and family, whether it was letters or phone calls. And the strangers I met were always kind with, out of 100, 200 strangers, maybe one or two were less pleasant. That was such a nice surprise.
0: Tell me about some of those people
1: experiences along the way. Well, we could almost go back to the beginning of the trip because it was endless even the very first day when i was hiking through hell roaring canyon i go how am i going to get up there i know where i want to go i want to take such and such a road that'll get me near the the top of the canyon a mile or two of hiking i'll be in the canyon and i was at a campground and just happened to meet a guy who was also camping there and described it a little bit in my writing but uh He was happy to help. He wasn't the first. He certainly wasn't the last. And the next day, he gave my dog and me and my backpack, since I was hiking for a few days. Took a couple hours out of his day, gave me a ride up this rough, gravelly road, and I got started. Again, uh, strangers all along the way. It was almost always a positive experience. So much so you could round it off and, and actually say, yes, it was all just wonderful. There were one or two people that weren't quite so nice, but it was so rare that that didn't bother me at all some characters i was on the last big reservoir in montana fort peck and i met this guy i suppose he would be the age i am now he was certainly in his late sixties and he was almost a character out of a movie Uh, i don't know what movie I think i described describe him as looking a little bit like Yoda from Star Wars. Okay. And he, he had been out there on this homemade raft, this monster, and the storm wrecked it, threw him on shore, stranded him. I happened to cross him, spent an hour or two with him. He was looking for gold. I thought there was a strange place. I have some geology background. I thought that was a strange place to look for gold. But he had shipwrecked, and he had this monster dog. The dog in Groucho, my dog, did not get along at all and spent an hour or two listening to his stories. He claimed to be a descendant of William Clark of the Lewis and Clark expedition. I don't know about that. But otherwise, if I recall all the dams, all the portages, I think this is accurate. The first person I asked to help, the very first person when I would reached the area near the dam face was always the person that actually portaged me. I never had to ask a second person. And that was wonderful. I mean, there were a couple of times I actually arranged ahead of time who I was gonna meet at the dam, but usually I would just paddle up near the dam and there'd be a fisherman there or someone else enjoying the view, being a tourist. And I say, do you know anywhere I could get some help portaging around the dam? And 100% of the time, it was always the first person I talked to. So how can you predict that? I could never have predicted that.
0: Like you said earlier, it kind of restores your faith. Yes, yes,
1: indeed. Why solo? Well, that wasn't what I wanted to do. I was, uh, well, I'd say I was a bachelor in my mid-30s. I was hoping that one of the ladies I knew might join me. I didn't know anybody else offhand who would, any of the fellows who would be interested in going along. They all had real jobs or other activities or just didn't want to take such a trip. But I decided, well, I've had this dream in my head for a number of years. I'm not going to abandon it because no one else will join me again. My dog at the time, I'd just gotten him a couple years before, was uh, was a pretty good companion. So I decided to head out anyway. I just couldn't see abandoning that long-held ambition to try to paddle the entire length of the, of the longest river system in North America.
0: Realizing that each area had its own personality and each river has its own personality, what was your favorite part?
1: I have had that question before, and... I don't think I can answer it. I can give you my top five, perhaps. (laughs) Let's go with that. A couple of them would probably be Montana. The Gates of the Mountains area is spectacular. I don't think you'll find more beautiful scenery, mountain scenery anywhere. The Missouri Breaks has its own charm. It's that primitive, wild, backwoods, outdoors, the vistas, uh, the views. uh, Again, even the weather sometimes when the weather would be Cooperate with me was very nice. Again, I I mentioned this. I think, as far as the reservoirs and the scenery along the reservoirs, I still think Sakakawea has the prettiest shorelines and the most intriguing visual composition, if that's not too intricate of a way of phrasing it. Those were beautiful. Paddling through the middle of Missouri, because it was so predictable at that point and good current and relatively narrow river, keep you moving, was a wonderful area. As you get further and further south, and especially as you start to near New Orleans, of course, you have the buildup of the waterfall of roughly half of North America comes by that area in Louisiana, Mississippi. And you have a lot of industrial byproducts and castoffs and garbage became more common. That actually happened farther up in the river. I think I make a joke that In order to disguise my tracks, I should leave garbage because there's so much garbage. But that's an exaggeration, of course. The last week was very nice. Again, it was so desolate out there on the Delta past New Orleans. It was flat, wide open. It was January at that point, January 1990. And everything is brown. And it almost reminded me of North Dakota. Flat, barren, brown trees, except, of course, you're not on land, you're, you're surrounded by water. Yeah. The whole area, the Delta area, is very, very low-lying and desolate. Nobody lives there. It's wild, wide open. And the last day of the trip, I was actually in a national wildlife refuge again at the lower part of the Delta. So I was starting in a wildlife refuge and ending in a wildlife
0: refuge. But they were beautiful areas there. You mentioned navigation earlier. Uh-huh. Did you find navigation to be a challenge? No, perhaps
1: because it was my line of work at the time and I was very familiar with how to use maps and detailed topographic maps. I carried two good quality compasses, always had one as a spare. One time I got lost for about an hour and it was I keep coming back to Fort Peck. Right below Fort Peck, they have a lot of still water below the dam as the river comes out of the spillway. There are all these little bays and inlets and I accidentally got into the wrong one. That wasn't the river. It was just dead water. It took about an hour. It figured that out. Got back to the main channel. But no, I was never lost otherwise. always had a good idea for where I was on the map. I used to have this. This actually happened by the time I got to the Dakotas. It really did. I would have nightmares. <laughs> And in my nightmare, I was paddling on the water, looking at my map and realized I was hundreds of miles away from where I was supposed to be. You know, oh no, I'm on the wrong river. I got (laughs) weeks to go. Or a variation of it was uh, I would see a reservoir on the map ahead of me that wasn't supposed to be there. And there it was, you know, another 100 miles of lake to cross and no current. This, uh, I actually had those dreams. And uh, I think I say in the book, when it happened, it would wake me up. It was that dis- disconcerting of a, of a dream. But navigation, no, that wasn't, didn't become an issue for me. And this, again, is pre-technological, smartphone, Garmin, GPS, pre all of that. It was all pretty straightforward. Everything had to be downhill. Just point the boat downhill and keep going. You mentioned uh, growing up in North Dakota,
0: so tell, uh-huh. us, tell
1: us how you got your outdoor passion. I guess uh, my childhood upbringing. I grew up on a farm, which is where I'm sitting right now. Our closest neighbor is well over a mile in any direction. And parents would take us camping when we were kids. Uh, my uh, late teens, 20s, I was still just, I loved the outdoors. Some of it was hunting, though I don't do that very much these days. But just getting out and exploring, seeing beautiful areas. I've always enjoyed camping, and uh, I don't know how to explain why I do so. But I—I I feel lucky. I feel sorry for anybody living in an urban environment. Uh, I go, oh, you don't know what you're missing. I've been <laughs> to a city. I've actually lived in cities, but you don't know what you're missing. I'm not sure I can psycho—I can't uh, analyze myself to figure out why I love it so much. But uh, it, it's the way it is.
0: Well, I think that all our listeners of the show probably feel uh, very much the same as that outdoors is the place to be.
1: So. I, I agree. Uh, closer to nature, I always felt that kind of connection. I uh, grew up on a farm. My grandparents were farmers, great-grandparents were farmers. It goes back as far as we can see. That's a kind of the heritage. I don't think it's really genetic in any way, but I like to sometimes think so. <laughs> How did you get seven months off? I was running my own business. I actually had my own business in my late 20s and early 30s in western North Dakota. I was a geophysical engineer. I would do engineering work for mining companies, water well drillers, city municipal entities, the landfills, monitoring. I worked a lot with geologists and with drilling crews. I was always working with a drilling crew. Geophysical engineering is an unusual position or a job people don't really know what it is. I was the only one in two states. I was the only person that had a geophysical company that did that kind of work, but the drillers would drill a hole. I would show up with my equipment, my gear, and drop a probe down the hole and get very accurate readings of uh, the geology, what layers of rock do we have at what levels and so forth. So it was my own company. And by the end of the 80s, I... uh, I had said, well, okay, I've done this. I've been doing this for almost a decade, but I still want to do this canoe trip. Finally, I managed to find a buyer for my company. And once I did, that was the beginning of my canoeing. I said, well, now I'm out of work. (laughs) I don't have a job. I might as well go canoeing. But that was my goal at the late 80s. And uh, it finally all came together and worked out. So I sold my business. That's how I got the time off and took a year off and did
0: this. So you come back after the trip no business. Now what?
1: Well, I had enough of a nest egg to keep me going for a bit. I started writing uh, more and more. I uh, accidentally got bit in the early 90s by the theater bug. And so I spent the second half of my life doing the arts. I spent the first half of my life doing sciences, the way I see it. And then starting about then, I started getting into the arts and eventually into educational theater. But I kept my hand in, um, I actually ended up back in the geophysical world again. It was kind of a karma throwing me a curveball. <laughs> I'd never expected I'd be back to geophysical engineering, but later in the 90s, I ended up again owning my old company, firing up my old company and doing geophysical work till turn of the century. And that's when I really got into theater and the arts and education, which I have been doing for about 20 years.
0: That's a polar opposite. in terms of career paths. People say so, it gets
1: us perhaps a little away from the the subject here today, but uh, people say, Mark, how do you go from geophysical logging, geophysical engineering to theater? And I would try to make a joke, I'd say, well, geophysical engineering is a lot like theater. But then when I reflected on this, for me, for me, there was this odd connection, which is geophysical work, the type that I was doing, you had to know about 10 or 12 of the hard sciences. You didn't have to be an expert geologist or an expert in electronics, but I better know geology pretty well and electronics and engineering and computers and physics, especially. You better have a good grounding in about 10 of the sciences, but you don't need a PhD in any one of them. And in theater, you have something that's kind of analogous to that. You better know about 10 of the arts. You don't need to have a PhD in painting or in architecture or in psychology, but you better have a pretty good grounding in about 10 different arts. And that kind of, I guess, wide diversity of information is something that's always appealed to this to my brain. I always wanted it all, so I didn't want to, to be specialized and pigeonholed into one little specialty. That those are valuable, valuable positions. that We need people there, but it wasn't for me. So I went from knowing... I guess, 10 of the sciences to 10 of the arts. And that's the connection for me. It was diverse and interesting. It always kept me occupied and interested to learn all these things. How many books did you
0: read along the way?
1: I wish I'd kept a count. <laughs> I would guess at least two dozen, maybe 30. That would be roughly a book a week. And again, a, a wide variety of material. Some of it just fluff you know, like I say, uh, maybe a badly written science fiction book, but then also some of the classics. Classic literature has always fascinated me. I've read a good deal in that from writers that died a thousand, two thousand years ago. I even found, and your listeners may find this atrocious, I would read while I was paddling. I had enough gear piled in front of me and strapped in, netted in, And I would prop open the paperback in the netting and read two pages while I'm paddling, (laughs) reach up, flip the pages, read the next two pages. It was simply that at certain points, scenery, wonderful as it was, would be repeated over and over and over and over. And I'm traveling alone, no conversation to be had. And I actually read one or two books basically doing that while I was paddling.
0: Impressive. I'm not sure, but I'll, okay. (laughs) So speaking of books, you have a book about your journey.
1: Yes, and I've alluded to it many times already. Uh, The title is Waterlog, kind of a play on being out in the water too much. Boy, that thing is really waterlogged. But also Waterlog spelled G-U-E at the end as a uh, record, as a journal. So it plays both those directions. Waterlog, it just was published about two months ago. All right. Um, six or seven weeks ago after all this time. I'm glad it's finally out. I wish I'd done it earlier. I had planned to publish in the 90s, ran into a few snags and roadblocks and got diverted by, by theater, really. But I'm glad that it's finally seen print and people seem to enjoy it.
0: Yeah. What took 33
1: years? Procrastination, Okay. really. <laughs> but I did the bulk of the writing in the book is from the 90s. Uh, Very little of it has been written now in the 21st century. A lot of editing. It's gone through a lot of, um, I guess, editing. It's had a lot of help. I had a few rejections, rejection letters from publishers in the 90s. I was, again, perhaps too ambitious. I was writing to the big publishing houses saying, you should publish my book, it's this. But it was uh, self-edited, some of it at that time, though with a lot of input from very smart, intelligent people along the way. I was part of a writer's group that helped me throw out some of the chaff and keep the stuff that was worthwhile. But I uh, had a thing in my mind where I did not want to self-publish. Perhaps I should have anyway, because now after 30 years, some good friends and family have passed away and will never see it. And maybe even in rough form, they would have liked to have seen it. But uh, an old friend who has a small publishing company in Minnesota kept uh, bringing the subject up in the last few years. Mark, I'd like to publish your book. So we finally made that happen. We spent most of the summer doing final editing, corrections, taking out some of the worst or clumsiest writing. The only new writing in the book that's actually completely new is the first chapter on the Badlands. Because I had never written that section up for the newspapers at that time. I started writing for a newspaper publication, not during the main part of the trip, but not during that shakedown cruise at the beginnings. But I really thought the book needed that kind of introductory material. And so that first chapter is new writing, written this spring, actually. But the rest of it is all from the 90s. And I have an excuse that I wish to use, that if people find some of the writing brash at times, or a little too snarky or sarcastic well that was a younger person i wouldn't necessarily do it that way today but i didn't want to rewrite the old thing as an old man i wanted this to stand on its own as someone in their mid 30s at that time on the calendar and this is the way it appeared to me at that time
0: well it's a good read so where can read where can uh, where can listeners find the book
1: i've got some here all right <laughs> <laughs> But it's being published, as I say, out of a small press in Minnesota. They can find it online, Buffalo Commons Press. Those three words all put together, buffalocommonspress.com. Small press run by a professor I took classes from, who's retired now for a decade and published 15 books. I'm making up that number, but at least that many. And it's kind of a labor of love for him. And he uh, is covering all the expenses, so I sure hope he can at least break even. But buffalo commons press and you'll find it there you can order directly through that link on the internet
0: great and where can listeners find you
1: yes you will find me on facebook mark spitzer i think there are about five or ten of us out there so you might have to click around a little bit
0: mark that's been wonderful learning from you and uh, and hearing about your trip and I appreciate the opportunity to, to tell us about it, and uh, we'll make sure that we encourage listeners to look for Buffalo Commons Press and look up Waterlog, pick up a copy, and enjoy that for themselves. And, uh, Mark, one final question that we have for you, and that is, who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue? Well,
1: that's a good question. Again, I, was, I still canoe. I was canoeing two weeks ago on a little lake up in uh, Wisconsin. But I'm probably not as avid of a a day-by-day, week-by-week canoer now or kayaker as as many of your listeners are. But I think I would recommend Norm Miller. He runs a website called MissouriRiverPaddlers.com. And he has an incredible archive of material and his own uh, recordings and podcasts. But you can download the maps. You can read about the stories. You can read about the history from the 1800s. And I think he would be a very interesting guest for you to
0: consider. Super, well, I appreciate the, uh, the connection to Norm and uh, we'll look forward to getting him on the show again, or sh- getting him on the show as well. So again, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you.
1: Well, thank you, John. It's, it's been a pleasure for me too.
0: If you wanna be a stronger and more efficient paddler, Power to the Paddle is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concepts and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or white water, Protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit paddlingexercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. It's always interesting hearing not only about the journey itself, but about what motivated someone to do the trip and how their life changed because of it. In Mark's case, he traded the sciences for the arts, and maybe the canoe was the vehicle to make that happen. Thanks again to our partners at OnlineSeaKhiking.com for extending a special offer to you. Visit OnlineSeaKayaking.com, enter the code PTBpodcast to check out, and get 10% off just for being a member of the Paddling the Blue community. For our next episode, we'll be joined by Ken Whiting. You've likely seen Ken in the Facing Waves television program or his extensive YouTube presence. Ken's a world champion whitewater kayaker, and he joins us to share his story, what he loves about paddling, what keeps him paddling, and some of his favorite places. Until next time, thanks again for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.